Amen. Holy, 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 may we never lose sight of God's holiness, his power, his, his might. That, that idea of the, the hugeness of God, right? The infinite power, the infinite might, the infinite glory, like that should define us, that should guide us, that should direct us. And so may we never lose sight of just how holy God is. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 20. If you don't have Bibles, there should be some in the seat backs in front of you, or the verses will be on the screen as well. But Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, beginning in verse 17. We're continuing along with our series to the nations as we're looking at the last part of the book of Acts. We're looking at what does it look like to be a church that is sent out by the Holy Spirit to the nations? What does it look like to be the church that God has called us to be? And so we're going to continue to look at that in the second half of of Acts chapter 20 this morning. Acts 20, beginning in verse 17, says this. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's, let me pray for us and we'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your holiness, your, your might, your power. I pray, God, that, that we would recognize it more often. That you would remind us that our view of you is too small. It doesn't matter how big our view of you is, God. You are infinitely powerful and mighty, God. We cannot have too big of a view of you. And so I pray, God, that you would expand our view of you, that you would raise our eyes to your glory, to your holiness, God, that we would we would see you and pursue you with all that we are, God. I pray that, that the understanding of your holiness, your grace, and the gospel would would motivate us and, and drive us as a church. God, I pray that, that you would change everything about us. God, I thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. You have communicated to us. God, I pray this morning, because of our time in the word, that you would mold us and shape us in the the image of Jesus. God, that we would leave here this morning better than when we came because of our time in the word. We love you and praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Every good leader wants their organization to thrive after they're gone. Right? Nobody builds a company and says, man, I really hope this thing crumbles the second that I leave, like just right after. I hope the stock tanks and it's gone for good. Right? Everybody wants their, uh, their organization to do well after they leave. One of the, the worst things about leadership is the realization that it is always temporary. Right? It doesn't matter how long you're going to be in a role. 
eventually, unless you drive your company into oblivion, eventually you're going to have to hand the reins over to your organization to another leader, and you want them to do a good job. What you don't want is to be like Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was a, a Roman emperor in the second century, and he was known as the last of the five good emperors. Uh, he, uh, a lot of you guys might know Marcus Aurelius as the dying emperor at the beginning of the movie Gladiator. Uh, that may be more helpful. But uh, Marcus Aurelius was a wise king. He was a philosopher king, uh, a philosopher emperor. And, uh, and he was, like I said, the last of the five good emperors. And the fact that he's called the last of the five good emperors is probably a good indicator that his son, Commodus, was not up to the job of being emperor. Right? It's not like Commodus did such an amazing job that historians decided to label those five guys the good emperors so they could call him the first magnificent emperor. Right? Historians don't really do that. Instead, uh, the movie Gladiator, not really uh, historically accurate, but it does do a good job of depicting uh, uh, Commodus as a spoiled brat who had no business running an empire. Right? Because what happened is his rule was so bad that at the end of his rule, he was assassinated, and it led to five different people claiming to be emperor over the course of one year in the Roman Empire. And that's probably, I'm speculating a bit, but that's probably not what Marcus Aurelius had in mind when he handed a stable empire over to his son. Right? That it would end in assassination and a social upheaval of five different emperors in one year. That's what happened. That is every leader's worst nightmare. Right? They want the organization to thrive after they're gone, not descend into chaos. Well, Paul was like a dying Marcus Aurelius here in the beginning of Acts chapter 20. Paul is about to, to say goodbye to an organization that he loves. We found out earlier in the book of Acts that Paul helped to plant a church in the city of Ephesus. He, he showed up at Ephesus. He proclaimed the gospel. People placed their faith in Jesus, and he helped to, to, to get this church going. And, and if you remember, throughout the book of Acts, we've seen Paul plant churches in multiple cities. And most of the time, Paul stays a few weeks or a few months. But in this case, he stayed at Ephesus for at least two years. And he loved this church. He poured a lot of time and effort and energy into serving this church, helping to equip them, proclaiming the gospel. And so he's about to say goodbye. And he's on his way to Jerusalem, not really sure what's going to happen to him there. And so on his way to Jerusalem, he stops by the city of Ephesus and he calls the elders, the leaders of the church at Ephesus to himself. And he wants to give them instructions in order to make sure that this church stays healthy, thriving, and vibrant. Like this church at Ephesus is a gospel-centered church. This is a family of faith living for eternity today. This church is healthy, it's vibrant, it's thriving, and Paul wants to make sure that it stays that way after he leaves. And so he calls the elders together, the leaders of this church, and he gives them this instruction. He communicates this idea, that if you want a gospel-centered church, you have to protect against selfishness and greed. If you want a church that is going to take the gospel to the nations, if you want a church that is going to be healthy and vibrant and thriving, a place where eternal life exists and is flowing, a place where God's peace and, and rest, uh, where God's peace rests upon it, if you want that to be true of your church, you have to protect against selfishness and greed. And we're going to get to these two commands that Paul gives, these two instructions that Paul gives to the Philippian elders. But before Paul gets there, he, he reminds the elders and sets himself up as this example for them as a leader. So let's look at that beginning in verse 17. 
Verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so Paul starts out by reminding them about his ministry in the city of Ephesus. And he, notice he says that he lived with them the whole time from the first day they, he set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials. So while Paul was there in Ephesus, we've already read this earlier in the book of Acts, but while Paul was there in Ephesus, he's proclaiming the gospel, and the the Jewish religious leaders were attacking him constantly. They were nagging him constantly. They were kicking him out of Jewish synagogues. They were persecuting him there in the cities. And Paul says, when I was there among the church at Ephesus, when I was living among you guys, preaching among you guys, serving the church, I did all of it with humility. I endured trials. I endured so many tears trying to serve you guys as a church. Essentially, what Paul's saying is, I gave up my will for God's will. I had the, the humility to say, you know what, God, I would rather not endure trials in tears. I would rather not endure suffering at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. I'd rather not go through that. But with all humility, God, I'm going to follow you, your plan, and your will for our life and for this church. So he serves the church with humility, with tears, with trials. And notice what his ministry consists of. Verse 20. He did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, declaring to you, teaching you, testifying. All of those words have to do with the proclamation of the gospel. Paul's saying, my ministry to you was teaching the Bible. My ministry to you was was opening up scriptures and explaining what the scriptures mean so that you can apply them to your lives and boldly proclaiming the message of salvation in Jesus. That was Paul's gospel-centered ministry there in the city of Ephesus. As a a quick aside, there is no gospel-centered church in the world that doesn't preach the Bible and study the Bible in community. There's no gospel-centered ministry without preaching and teaching and studying and understanding the Word of God. Some of you may, may see a distinction between Scripture and the Gospel. There's the Bible over here and the Gospel over here, but that wasn't true in Paul's mind. There's not Bible study in this corner and Gospel proclamation in this corner. In Paul's mind, it's all the same. The Word of God is God's proclamation of the Gospel. It is good news of salvation in Jesus. That's what this book contains. And so every time that Paul opened up Scripture, every time that he preached it and proclaimed it to the church, he was proclaiming the Gospel. So he was either proclaiming the Gospel to people and saying that you need to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, as people here do, or he's saying that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is what the gospel means for how you live and how you act. Either way, he's proclaiming the gospel every time he opens up scripture. Gospel-centered ministry. That was, that was Paul's ministry. 
a ministry of opening up the word, a ministry of proclaiming the fact that there is salvation in Jesus Christ, that the grace of God covers over our sins because of the death and the resurrection of of Jesus. That was Paul's ministry. Every chance he got in the city of Ephesus, he, he, uh, verse 20, he declared to them the things that were profitable, meaning he opened up scripture and he taught them the gospel. Verse 20, again, he testified to them, he taught to them in public and from house to house. He, he taught, these are Christians he has in mind. He taught them from the scripture what it looks like to know God and to follow God. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God in a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is him going to the lost, going to people who do not know Jesus and going and proclaiming the glorious good news of the gospel, that there is grace and forgiveness of sins. This is a gospel-centered ministry in the word. Verse 22, Paul says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that uh, imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Paul says, I am now on my way to Jerusalem, and the reason I'm going to Jerusalem is the same reason that I endured trials and tears at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. I'm doing it because that's what God has told me to do. I am on my way to Jerusalem. And he says, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I I really don't know what the future holds, but all I know is that the the Holy Spirit has made it abundantly clear that when I get there, I'm going to be put in prison and afflictions are going to await me. Now, if I were to ask you guys to run an errand for me tomorrow in downtown Dallas, and I told you that there's a 100% chance that you will be mugged when you run this errand for me, and there, there may or may not actually be anything in it for you, but I just really need you to do it, none of you would take me up on that offer because you're sane, right? None of you would say, yeah, I'll go get mugged in downtown Dallas for you just because. Right? But Paul is saying, look, I'm going to... Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit has sent me and I don't know if anything good is going to happen but I know for a fact that something bad's going to happen but I'm going to go I am on my he is showing the humility that he showed in the city of Ephesus giving up his will for God's will he says I'm going to go because this is where God has sent me look at Paul's attitude in verse 24 I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Was Paul going because he was a lunatic who wanted to die? No. Paul was going because we see in verse 24 that God has sent him to go, and if God has sent him to go, he knows that he's going to go to proclaim the gospel. And he's willing to even give up his freedom or his life if it means that people can come to know Jesus. Talk about a gospel-centered ministry. This guy is going to Jerusalem knowing imprisonment and afflictions await him, and he says, it doesn't matter to me because the only thing that matters is that people know Jesus. The only thing that matters is the proclamation of the gospel. So I don't care if I'm going to get thrown in prison. I don't care if I'm going to get tortured or beaten. I don't care if I'm going to die. I will give all of it up if it means people will know Jesus. The gospel is that important to Paul in verse 24. So Paul goes on in verse 25. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent 
of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is a guy who's saying goodbye to a church that he loves. People that he has poured into and served for so many years. And he, you can hear like the heart-wrenching statement here. I know that none of you uh, among whom I have proclaimed the kingdom will see my face again. You can see the tone of this passage at the very end in verse 36. When he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was so much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So so Paul is saying goodbye, and this is a, a, a gut-wrenching moment for him because he's saying goodbye to a church that he loves. He says, you will not see my face again. And he stands up boldly and says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I'm leaving and I will not come back, but I know that I did my job here. I proclaimed the gospel. I taught you the word of God. So I am innocent. If if you guys choose to disobey, if you guys choose to to walk away, I am innocent of it all because I have done my job to proclaim the gospel. Paul's ministry was proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus. And Paul says, I did that. I have helped to to start this church, and, and the church was founded on the gospel. And I helped to equip and guide and teach the church. And they were equipped and guided and taught in the gospel. Like This is a gospel-centered church. So he says, I have done my job. Church is in a good state, in a good condition, because Paul fulfilled his gospel-centered ministry, leading this to be a gospel-centered church. And he wanted it to stay that way. And so at the the backdrop of this, uh, like Paul did everything you want, In a leader, Paul did everything right. So with the backdrop of his example, Paul gives them two instructions. If you want a gospel-centered church, here's the first instruction that Paul gives them. Protect the gospel community. Protect the gospel community. Look with me in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. Do you notice the commands that Paul gives in these chapters, in this this verse? Pay careful attention in verse 28. Verse 31, be alert. Paul is using this imagery of shepherds to the rest of the church, to uh, shepherds to the flock to, to describe the relationship between elders and the church. And it's the job of the elders to, to be vigilant, to be watchful, to protect the, the church, to protect the flock of God. And notice What Paul says in verse 28, the thing that's still on his mind is the gospel. 
the thing that, that is forefront on his mind is that this is a community of people who are centered around the gospel, being grown up in the gospel. Because in verse 28, he says, this is the church in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is the church that exists because Jesus Christ died and rose again. A church of people that exist because they have placed their faith in Jesus and have been resurrected to eternal life. Like this, that's the reason this church exists. He says, protect this gospel community. Be watchful. What is it that they're supposed to protect this community from? We see in verse uh, verse 28 that they're supposed to protect this church from selfish leaders. They're supposed to protect this church from selfish people. Verse 28, or verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The thing that Paul is most concerned about is that the elders protect the church from selfish leaders who are going to enter into the church or rise up from among the church to try to seize power and control for themselves and to lead off people after their direction, to protect the church from leaders that are not focused on the gospel, to protect the church from leaders who aren't focused on on building up the church from the word of God, but to protect the church from leaders who instead are trying to build up and seize control and power for themselves, to protect the church from selfish leaders. What's fascinating to me is that that's the sin that Paul, cared, that, that Paul singles out here. Because in, in American churches, we kind of have this unspoken list of acceptable sins and unacceptable sins. Right? These, are, these are the things we get really angry about. We're going to protest about these things. We're going we're gonna to seek legislation about these things. These are the things that really make us mad. And then these are the things that we kind of let slide. And one of the things on this side of the aisle, the things that we kind of let slide is selfish leadership. Like leaders who, who are power hungry and seeking to control things for their own benefit and for their own gain. And we've allowed it to slide for decades in American Christianity because if there's a leader who can really build a church, who can really get results, and it doesn't matter that they're a little authoritarian. It doesn't matter that they're toxic. It doesn't matter that they're manipulative and harmful. They're really getting results. And so we're willing to let that slide. But that's the thing that Paul is most concerned about here. Paul says, elders protect the gospel community from people like that. Protect the gospel community from selfish leaders. We only have to look at the news or to, to listen to popular podcasts like the rise and fall of Mars Hill to see this in, in, in live action today. What was a concern back then is still a concern today that, that in gospel-centered communities, selfish people will enter into the church or rise up from the church to try to grab power and authority for themselves. These are, these are pastors who are, who are bent on building their own platform without any respect for the church at all, who want to be heard, who want to be known, who want to sell books and be famous. They want to be on all the, the, the TV shows and the podcasts and everything that they can, they can get their hands on. They want to be the, the, the biggest platform that they can possibly have. And they're going to build it without any reference or any care to whether the church that they serve is healthy. 
And whether the people that they know and love, whether the church that they are in charge of is growing up in the gospel, they are serving and leading in such a way to build their own platform instead of building up the church. And they are uh, selfish leaders. We see it happen time and time again. How many pastors in recent years have been fired from their churches, particularly large ones, have been fired from their churches because they have created toxic environments behind the scenes? Because they were manipulative and abusive and corrupt. And they were building their platform instead of leading the church in the gospel. And worse, how many pastors weren't fired (laughs) who were selfish and manipulative and toxic and watched their churches rise up only to crumble? There are selfish leaders who are going to try to come into gospel-centered churches and seek power and authority for themselves to take control wherever they can wield it. And it's not just a threat from the outside. Paul says in verse 30, from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Selfish leaders can rise up from among their own church. A few years ago, several years ago now, I was uh, preaching at a, I preached several times at a, at a small church about 40 miles from here. And this church was once the, the biggest church in their city. Uh, it wasn't a, it's not a large city, so it's not like they were a mega church or anything, but they, they were a large church, had a great gospel influence in their community. But over the years, their influence and their, uh, their, their attendance had waned to the point where as I was there preaching a few times, they had only had about 10 or so people that would show up on Sunday mornings. And as I'm talking to this church, one of those 10 people was a man who ended up wielding incredible power over this church. He's a man who, who over the years had just been collecting control and power for himself, and he wanted to wield it for his own benefit. So this is, by, by this point, this church of 10 people, this one man was in charge of the finances. He was in charge of the building. He was in charge of the deacons. He's the only deacon left. He was in charge of the advertising. He was in charge of the pastor search process. He was in charge of the interim pastor search process. He, he had every avenue under his control, under his guidance. He had all of the power to himself, and he strangled the church to death. Because in his pursuit of power, in his pursuit of control, he didn't actually care about the, the church, that the church would know and love God, that the church would understand the gospel and be raised up in it. Instead, he was, he was, his, his pursuits were power for the sake of power. And it ended up leading that church down a terrible path where it dwindled from a great gospel community down to nothing. It's a church that no longer exists. Elders must protect the church from selfish leaders. People who are going to rise up and take people's minds and eyes off of the gospel and start putting it on other things. And by extension, every single one of you are responsible for making sure that that selfishness does not have a home here. That, that, that it's not okay to rise up and try to, to take leadership and control for your own self or for, for someone else's sake, but, but to serve. And the thing that has to guide us is the gospel. 
the thing that has to define every interaction is whether or not we want to pursue Jesus and make him known in the world. The gospel has to be central. Selfishness does not have a place here. So every single one of us needs to make sure that we're not contributing to selfishness and that we're not okay with selfishness in the church. If we want a gospel-centered church, we have to protect the gospel community. Paul's second instruction to the church is to prioritize the gospel message. Look with me in verse 31. Excuse me, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul tells the Ephesian elders, he says, all right, I'm leaving. I'm handing you over to the word of God. I'm handing you over to the authority and the influence of Scripture, the authority and influence of the gospel, because that's the thing that's going to give you value and life as a church. That's the thing that's going to to build you up and to encourage you. That's the thing of value. Look at what he says at the end of verse 32. The word of his grace is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he says, I'm handing you over to the word of God to study it, to know it, to love it. Love it to preach it. I'm handing it over because that's the thing that should guide you. Because that's the thing that's valuable. There's nothing else that's valuable. The thing that should uh, that our church should be staked on, the thing that our church is founded upon, is faith in Jesus. And there's nothing else of value. Verse 33. Paul says, "I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel." You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak or remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what Paul does is he contrasts a ministry that is gospel-centered, a ministry that is all about the word of God, a ministry that is, is focused on, on preaching and knowing the word of God, a, a ministry that is focused on the gospel and, and with a ministry that is focused on gaining wealth, with a, fo- a ministry that is greedy. And those two things are, are opposites from one another. Paul says the word of God, that's the thing of value. The gospel is the thing that's valuable. It's the thing that's going to give you an inheritance among the saints. That's the thing that's going to shape you and mold you in the image of Jesus, which is the greatest thing that can happen to you. But on the flip side, there's going to be a temptation to abandon that and to pursue money, to pursue silver, to pursue gold. Paul says, look at my example. You know that I didn't pursue silver or gold or peril when I was among you. I didn't care about my my bank account or my finances. That wasn't the thing that drove me. The thing that drove me was the gospel, the word of God, because that's the only thing that has value. So we want a gospel-centered church. We have to prioritize the gospel message. We have to make sure that greed also has no place in the church because the, the, the wealth of this world, the silver, the gold, the apparel, the things that we can see, they have no eternal lasting value. And so when someone rises up from among the church, when a leader leads who is greedy, what he's doing is pursuing something that does not have value. 
What he's doing is pursuing something that cannot build up and equip the church. And so what you end up with when you have a greedy leader is a church that is not being built up in the word of God. Or if you have a greedy church member, then it's a member who is not benefiting the rest of the body because their eyes are on something other than the gospel. You may have read in the news recently, it was a pastor in uh, New York City uh, who was robbed while he was preaching on a Sunday morning. Uh, and the robbery in itself is, is fascinating, but the most fascinating part of the entire story is the fact that he was robbed of an estimated $1 million worth of jewelry. And, and I want to be clear, they didn't rob his home while he was preaching. They came to the church and robbed him and his wife while he was preaching, which means he and his wife were wearing over $1 million worth of jewelry. I don't know much about the pastor. I've read a little bit. I don't, I don't know much about the pastor, but I do know uh, on that alone that this is a guy who's focused more on silver and gold than on the gospel. And we see prosperity gospel preachers like, like Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer. We see these prosperity gospel preachers who are, who are living in, in huge houses or they're, they're uh, in Creflo Dollar's case, flying all over the world and their country and, and private jets funded by the churches. They're, they're pursuing all of these, these wealth and these silver and their gold. And it shows that these people have a, have a priority. They are greedy people whose priority is wealth and riches. And it's not the gospel. And I know that's the case because the gospel that they preach is a gospel based on silver and gold and not the actual gospel. It's a gospel that says you can have everything you want in this life. You can have the most wealth. You can have the happiest life. You can have the the best health. Everything can go your way if you'll follow Jesus instead of the actual gospel that says you can have forgiveness of sins and the grace of God you place your faith in Jesus. And that if you follow Jesus, you will be sanctified, molded in the image of Jesus, and that's the most valuable thing that can happen to you. So instead of building up the saints, instead of encouraging them in the gospel and equipping them for ministry, instead of proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus, they're preaching a gospel of silver and gold. We have to prioritize the gospel message. We have to make sure that greed has no place in the church. Because it doesn't promote the gospel. It doesn't promote eternal life. It doesn't promote salvation. Nothing in this world has eternal value. And so when we allow greed to take root in the church, when we allow greed to, to take root in the lives of the leaders or church members, when we allow that to take place, what we're saying is it's okay to take your eyes off the gospel and to put it on other things. But a gospel-centered church is a, is a church that prioritizes the gospel message. So elders need to prioritize the gospel message. He says, uh, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. He says, your job as elders, as leaders, is to love people well to proclaim the gospel and to serve people in need. There's no room in there for greed. The thing that drives you needs to be the gospel. The fact that there is salvation in Jesus, there's a God who loves people, and you need to love them well. There's no room in there at all for greediness. 
we want to be a church that is gospel-centered. If we want to be a, a family of faith living for eternity today, if we want that to be true, then we have to protect against selfishness and greed. Because when we as a church vote on elders, when we, when we pick them out of our group and we, we vote them, they have to be men who, are, uh, who, who protect against uh, selfishness, men who protect the gospel community. They have to be men who prioritize the gospel message. But even more than that, it's up to every single one of us to make sure that, that selfishness and greed do not have a home here. Because selfishness and greed are not acceptable sins. They are sins because they take devotion, they take our eyes away from the gospel, and they introduce other things like, like church politics and underhanded uh, decision-making and, and all these manipulative and toxic things. They introduce all of these sins and these problems to a local church because they distract from the gospel. It's not acceptable to allow selfishness and greed to take root in the church. If we want to be a gospel-centered church, we have to make sure that selfishness and greed have no place here. So what about in your lives? Selfishness and greed have a place in your life. Is the ambition of your heart, is your life spent trying to gain power and influence and control in different areas of your life? Is greed the thing that drives you? Do you are, are, is your goal to accumulate gold and silver and apparel? Is your goal to accumulate things that have no eternal value? What about when you approach the local church? Is your goal in the local church to, to gain power and control, to, to gain influence, to, to, uh, to seize control of different ministries and make them yours? Is, is your goal in the local church to, to build your network, to gain your influence in the world? Or is your goal in the local church to proclaim the gospel, to encourage and equip the people around you to follow after Jesus, to understand what it means to be a Christ follower? Is your goal in the local church to open up Scripture and discuss it to benefit the rest of the body? Selfishness and greed do not have a place here. We need to be a gospel-centered community. Some of you here this morning, you know that you have never placed your faith in Jesus. You've never experienced the true life, the eternal life that comes from Christ. The fact that, that Jesus Christ has died and risen again to give you eternal life, the abundant life. You have never experienced that. So this morning, what the Word of God is calling you to do is to repent of your sin, to turn from selfishness, to turn from greed, to turn from anything that you've been clinging on to, to turn from things that do not have value, and to put your faith in Jesus Christ that's you this morning, you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, in just a few moments we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here, probably right here. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you to come to the front. I'd love to pray with you. And there are people that, we'd lo that would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. And if you don't want to come to the front, if that's too embarrassing or nerve-wracking for you, we'll have people in the back as well who would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Do not leave here without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And do not, do not cling to temporary power or, or, or fleeting wealth at the expense of eternal, abundant life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that 
that there is the possibility of being a gospel-centered church, God, that there is the good news of the gospel, that you have sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us and to rise again from the grave so that through him we could have eternal life. God, I thank you that that gospel message doesn't just, doesn't just influence our, our eternal destination. God, it changes everything about us, that, that your gospel message, this grace that comes from the, your son Jesus can change our entire life. I thank you that we are a church that is rooted and founded on this glorious good news of the gospel. And we are a church that is pursuing you. I pray, God, that we would not be okay with selfishness and greed, that they would have no place in this church. They would have no place in our lives. God, I pray for the people here who do not know you, who, who have been clinging to things that cannot save, clinging to things that have no value. God, I pray that you would shake them free of their, their uh, selfishness and greed, that you would shake them free of this, this clinging to things that cannot save them. And God, that they would run to the cross and cling to the eternal life that comes from Jesus. God, this morning would be the morning that they enter into a relationship with you. Father, we love you. We praise you. And it's in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.